0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions, changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dr. Alice Beckson, the Chief Medical Officer at Viriad. We're going to talk a little bit about cancer, viruses, and some of her exciting background supporting the commercialization and study of numerous medicines. Alice, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could just quickly give us an intro to yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure. So I'm a medical oncologist by training. I actually trained in the UK, you might be able to tell from my accent, but I did my oncology in France at the Institut Gustave Roussy, which is a bit unusual. It was just something a bit more challenging to do. And I kind of fell into oncology by accident, found it fascinating and really enjoyed working on clinical trials. So in those early days, in the 90s, I worked on some cooperative group trials. I was involved in some industry, phase one and two studies as an investigator, treating the patients in those studies. And that seemed to me the place to go to really change things in oncology and to make the big decisions about you know, what were the new drugs that were going to be developed? So that's how I got into the pharma industry. I arrived by a sort of circuitous route, went to a small CRO first in Paris, and then moved to the Netherlands, went to another CRO that was actually part of the European Organization for the Treatment of Cancer at the time. And it was a phase one, two unit, so it was early stage clinical trials. Then after that, took a more classical path, became a medical director for Sanofi, France, and then moved to global at Roche here in the United States in 2001. So I was at Roche for nearly seven years. I regard that really as my training in oncology. I had a global medical leader role and worked on a couple of products, in particular Zoloda, which was chemotherapy and oral chemotherapy for use in pretty much every solid tumor you can imagine, actually. So, you know, that was a very, very interesting project to work on. Eventually, when I left Roche, I went to a small biotech. I worked for Idea Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge, Massachusetts and was VP of Clinical Development there for a while. And then we licensed out all our drugs. So I didn't have a whole lot to do and started consulting. And I founded Bexson Clinical Consulting in 2008 and have been doing that ever since. We now have about 45 people working for us. We provide a clinical team, a clinical development team with oncology focus to our clients. I met Steve Russell from Viriad about five years ago and we clicked and I agreed to be the chief medical officer for Viriad and help him develop his oncolytic viruses, which we are taking from strength to strength.
0: Wonderful. Well, it certainly sounds like quite a a storied history and sounds like you've had a lot of interesting experience, both big and small sized biotech and pharmaceutical companies, as well as your own sort of consulting firm. You know, before we sort of get into the meat of the discussion, any initial insights or learnings you could share about that transition from larger, more established, you know, European pharmaceutical companies to sort of emerging high growth sort of biotechs?
1: I think when you work for a big pharma company, to a certain extent, you're very secure in your knowledge that you're surrounded by experts who've been doing it for years and a system that knows how to develop drugs. So it's kind of a safe environment to learn in, but also an environment in which can be very high pressure. And you learn all the structures and the processes and things, and it can be quite a heavy burden. Going to a small biotech after that can be an enormous breath of fresh air. I think one thing I would say to people who are thinking about taking that leap is not to worry too much about job security because the expertise that you've gained in big pharma is extremely valuable in the world of small biotech. And that's the big difference, I think, with small biotech. It's full of highly motivated people who have amazing ideas, a lot of scientists who are fresh from the bench top, But there's a dearth of people who really know how to develop drugs in a rapid and thoughtful way in order to meet the expectations of investors and boards and patients. But I think that the small biotech environment in general is the most exciting environment in drug development.
0: That's great. So, you know, with that, given that your background is in the space of oncology, I know one of the topics we're seeing and hearing and reading about a lot is sort of the use of sort of viruses to treat cancer. Before we get into sort of what Viriad does specifically, would love it if you can give us a quick primer on the history of oncolytic viruses and what some of the current state-of-the-art is like.
1: Sure. So people have been working on oncolytic viruses for quite a long time, but it's really only in the last few years that things have started to look very promising. Interestingly enough, there are observations in over decades or even centuries that occasionally patients who caught a virus kind of accidentally had their cancer even cured, you know, these anecdotal reports, and particularly with things like measles, that measles could actually cure cancer. And that really spurred researchers on to investigate how that could happen and to figure out whether we could actually use viruses as a treatment. And that's how we came to where we are today, where there is actually one oncolytic virus on the market that's used to treat melanoma and many more in development that are given in all kinds of different ways and are based on all kinds of different viruses.
0: Wonderful. And in that scenario, what do you sort of see as some of the current viruses that are being leveraged in the case of cancer? What types of cancers are they sort of confined to? Curious to sort of hear how that uh, modality has at least successfully been leveraged to date.
1: So... There's quite a lot of the common viruses have been used as vectors. And that, of course, is logical because we know a lot about the safety of the common cold, for instance, so adenoviruses and herpes viruses and measles virus as well. But what's been happening lately is people have been branching out into more exotic viruses. And I think we have some really good evidence that these more exotic viruses might have advantages over the more traditional, well-known common viruses in order to you know, deliver a treatment. For example, the measles virus, which I was talking about before, is one of the treatments that we, we have at Viriad. And you know, we have cases of patients who have effectively been at least put into a very long-term remission with this treatment. But the problem is that most people have immunity to measles because they've been vaccinated or they've caught it when they were a child. What we really need is a virus that doesn't have that immunity already existing in the population because then we can deliver it systemically instead of having to just inject it into tumors like we currently do with TVEC, the one I was telling you about that's used to treat melanoma. Its limitation is that you can't deliver it systemically.
0: Yeah, got it. You know, one of the interesting areas for drug development is sort of combination therapies. Kind of curious to hear from your perspective when you look at what's oncolytic viruses, checkpoint inhibitors, etc. What interesting combinations have you seen so far in the market as well as in development that may or may not be working?
1: I think what we've seen in, in the last 10 years is a revolution in the use of immunotherapy in cancer. And that's been spearheaded by the checkpoint inhibitors, in particular PD1 targeted antibodies and PDL1 targeted antibodies, as well as CTLA4. Those are the most ingrained immunotherapies in the treatment algorithm today, and they certainly can be transformative for patients. You know, for the first time in certain malignancies, we have seen very long term survivors, and this is obviously great news. But what people don't realize when they hear all the hype is that in certain tumor types, nobody responds to immunotherapy. And in others, it's a very small percentage. So so there's still a huge unmet medical need for something that will help the immune system recognize the tumor as foreign and get rid of it. And that's where the oncolytic viruses can come in. If you combine them with these immune stimulatory checkpoint inhibitors, and the virus allows the tumor to be flagged up to the immune system, then the checkpoint inhibitor can boost that immune system and you should be able to have better response rates and better cure rates.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So, you know, with that sort of overview, would love to hear a little bit about Buriad's perspective on this problem, but, you know, actually more interestingly, we'd love to hear sort of about the origins of the company and some of the programs thereafter.
1: Yeah, so Viriad is a, is a classic biotech. It's one of these small companies founded on a strong backbone of science. It's actually a spin-off from the Mayo Clinic that was founded out of a couple of smaller spin-offs, each of which came with its own virus-based technology and formed back in well when I joined the company essentially to file its first IND and that was on the measles virus that we call MV1.
0: Awesome. I know we sort of talked a little bit about some of the technologies that are going on in this space, but you mentioned measles as sort of one. Curious if you can comment on some of the other
1: types oh, yeah, of
0: viruses that are uh, uh, underpinning the growth at Viriad.
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing is that, that once you know how to create these drugs, you can essentially have an infinite pipeline. So although the very first oncolytics at Viriad came from measles, We've moved on to use a platform of a VSV, vesicular stomatitis virus, which has very little immunity in the general population. So that really meets the criteria for a systemic therapy. And then further on from that, we have a number of other potential platforms that are sitting there in the pipeline just waiting to be developed. And you can arm those viruses with various different stimulants or antigenic targets, or other ways of, you know flagging up the tumor to the immune system and then let them loose on the cancer? Essentially, I can't really tell you how many oncolytics we have in our pipeline because we can pretty much make one for
0: every situation. Got it. And let me just maybe spend a minute on that concept, which is, you know, when you look at the conventional, say, small molecule world, you can synthesize infinite types of molecules, right? However, a very small portion of them could potentially be drugs for a variety of reasons, right? Solubility, toxicity, et cetera. When you say infinite versions of an oncolytic virus, are you taking a common scaffold and then modifying it? Are you just looking at the variety of different viruses that are out there and screening those? Curious, how do you scale that design?
1: You can do both of those things, but you can also fuse them and create new ones. So the answer is yes. (laughs) For instance, I mean, let's use VSV as an example because I think that's the one that's most important at the moment for Viriad. We can develop further versions of VSV. We add in, for instance, the VV1, which is our our lead candidate at the moment, which we're developing in collaboration with Regeneron. That virus is actually a human interferon beta gene inserted into VSV and it also has the thyroid iodine gene inserted into it, which allows us to pick it up when we do certain types of scans. So you can actually see the virus replicating in the tumour inside of people. So you know you can basically load these viruses up with whatever you want to do to either target the tumour or to kill the tumour or to flag it up to the immune system and that's why you have so many choices obviously you know you have to pick the right for instance you can have them make a cytokine like like an interferon beta right depending on which cytokine you use you get a different effect so you have to do a certain amount of screening to figure out what are the most potent ones and which ones replicate best and you can't load them up too much and so on so there's a lot of thought that goes into how you how you develop each candidate
0: that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, you had mentioned sort of measles as sort of one of the promising candidates that uh, you all are developing as well as VSV. we would love to hear about some of the indications where you're seeing those viruses be the most impactful.
1: Yeah. So our measles oncolytic is called MV1, and we've been investigating that in bladder cancer. So this is quite interesting. What you can do is you can actually infuse the virus into the bladder in patients who have a tumor that's perhaps spread beyond the standard of care therapy which in itself is an immunotherapy and has been for a very long time. We use BCG, which is derived from tuberculosis bacteria, uh, as a standard of care therapy in early bladder cancer. When that fails, the problem is you have either a choice of going to chemotherapy or just going straight to surgery. And usually after the chemotherapy, you go to surgery anyway. So what happens is that once they fail BCG therapy, patients have the prospect of losing their bladder and having to live with a stoma for the rest of their lives. And what we're trying to do with our MV1 is actually put off that moment of having to have your bladder removed. And the early study that we're conducting right now is actually in patients who we know are going to have their bladder removed. And we're looking at the effect of the virus directly on the tumour. And what we're managing to show is that we can actually downstage those tumours. And we'd give two installations of the measles. And with just that, we've managed to get some very nice results in a few patients. It's a very small study, We need more patients on this study, and we're currently recruiting in a number of sites across the U.S.
0: Uh, Well, it certainly sounds quite promising. I don't know as much as you do about oncolytic viruses, but given that you're leveraging viruses like the measles, for example, do you feel like there are fewer manufacturing-oriented challenges with those sorts of approaches compared to others that uh, people are pursuing?
1: Well, I think that we know how to make viruses because we, you know, as, as an industry I'm talking about, because we've been making vaccines for a very long time. Now, different viruses have to be grown in different media. So, you know, not everything can be grown in an egg yolk. And a lot of viruses have to be grown in um, mammalian cell models and so on. But this is something that Viried's also been doing for quite a long time and is really ramping up now our own manufacturing. So, you know, depending on the company, you use different ways of doing this. But I think that is one of our expertise is, is, is in knowing how to make these things.
0: Awesome. Well, certainly sounds quite promising. Um, other than bladder cancer, are there other indications where you sort of see tremendous promise for this platform?
1: Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about our Voyager V1 Oncolytic, the one that we're working with Regeneron on, is that it can be given systemically. It's given IV. It's one shot and then the patient receives checkpoint inhibitors after that. And we've seen some very nice results in a, in a few patients who had, you know, really refractory tumours to immunotherapy, tumours that don't respond to things anymore. And we've had some very long-lasting responses in patients who've got very good symptomatic improvement and long disease-free intervals. I think the other one that's very interesting is one of the studies we're conducting in collaboration with Mayo Clinic. In fact, they're the sponsor of the study. In T cell lymphoma, and there we are seeing some very nice responses um, that are lasting a long time. There's been complete response as well. That data, I think, is going to be presented at ASCO.
0: Wonderful. You know, we're certainly uh, eager to see what the data and the readout looks like from those initial studies, and certainly, um, you know, wish you all the best in that endeavor. You know, before we wrap here, I, there's one question we often love to ask our guests, which we love to hear your opinion on, which is. Do you feel like we're in the golden age of biotech right now?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that the development of the vaccines for COVID-19 have really shown us how well we can do these things. You know, who would have thought back in March last year that we would have had a vaccine on the market by November? That's a challenge for us all, I think, in biotech, to know that you can do that now and that you can work with the regulators, you can work with the government agencies um, you can work with the funders to develop something so quickly if the need is high enough. And that really shows us, you know, how far we've advanced and just what the science can do when we're given the challenge.
0: Absolutely. You know, it certainly seems like a lot of the cultural limitations working in person or, as you mentioned, sort of like the regulatory aspects have been challenged and hopefully removed permanently. And hopefully we'll start to see that translate into uh Know, more and more innovative medicines come to the forefront.
1: Yeah, I mean my company's been involved with the biotech vaccine and you know I think the difference there the, the interesting thing about that whole relationship is a relationship between a small dynamic biotech and a big pharma company. But when you talk to people on both sides of that relationship, everybody was galvanized, right The small company, came in with a sort of radical ideas and new approaches, and then the big company had the expertise in manufacturing and the regulatory know-how, and you put all of that together and you make everybody motivated and you get the fastest development program ever.
0: Certainly, uh, I think something we would love to see across a multitude of different indications, that's for sure. So, you know, with that, Alice, would love to thank you for uh, joining us on today's podcast. Really excited to see, uh, you know, the work that Buried is doing come to the forefront as well as hope to have you and perhaps maybe other members of the team as well back on the show once uh, the, your clinical candidates uh, advance further.
1: Yeah, we'd love to do that. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Ta'i. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050, P-O-D. Until next time.